From WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Capital Notes, a podcast about Wisconsin politics and politicians. I'm Marty Michelson. Each week, I discuss noteworthy developments with J.R. Ross, editor of WISPolitics.com. Here's our latest conversation. So, J.R., the Kavanaugh hearings took center stage last week in Washington, along with both candidates in Wisconsin's U.S. Senate race, weighing in on whether Judge Kavanaugh should be confirmed to the U.S. Supreme Court. After hearing emotional testimony on Thursday from the woman who has accused Kavanaugh of sexually assaulting her when she was 15, Democratic incumbent Senator Tammy Baldwin asked for an FBI investigation. But Republican challenger Leah Vukmir doubled down and called for quick confirmation of Kavanaugh. How do you think Baldwin and Vukmir's positions on this, is- on this issue will resonate with voters? Look at the Marquette University Law School poll from a couple weeks ago. Vukmir was in the upper 80s with Republicans in terms of you know, support. That's not really where you want to be with partisan voters. You want to have them more in the 90s. So this could be of a play to shore up the base. Obviously, also, you know, she may believe it and support Judge Kavanaugh's nomination. That's a rallying cry kind of a position for the base. Now, what I've been trying to figure out and talk to you about this whole nomination from day one has been, is there really a pressure on Tammy Baldwin to support the president's nomination? You know, Trump won Wisconsin. There's a lot of talk about Trump state Democrats and how they'd be put in a box because of this. But in looking at the dynamic here, Trump has been unpopular in Wisconsin, yet he won the state in 2016, but with a plurality, so only 23,000 votes. His numbers have not gotten any better. So the feeling has been generally, like people I talk to, that Baldwin's not facing a significant pressure to support Trump, and people generally don't see her suffering a, a big blowback. Obviously, Partisan Republicans are going to say that this is bad and they're going to be unhappy about it, but that's not really Paul's audience anyways. Also last week, two conservative groups funded by mega-donor Richard Uline launched ads on behalf of Vukmir, who is trailing Tammy Baldwin by 11 points in the most recent Marquette Law School poll. Uline poured millions in an effort to get Vukmir's primary opponent, Kevin Nicholson, elected. And Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell held a fundraiser for Vukmir on Wednesday night in Washington. Will these developments result in a shot in the arm to Vukmir's campaign, and if so, how much could they help Vukmir as she tries to catch up to Baldwin? It's obviously not going to hurt to get money. The question, though, has been that beyond these kind of smaller buys from these Uline-backed groups, is there going to be an influx of big money coming in? How is Vukmir's fundraising going to go? Will she be able to catch up with Tammy Baldwin? Because so far, Baldwin's had a significant fundraising edge on Vukmir, and the issue continues to be if you look at this national map, the focus is on places like West Virginia, Indiana, Missouri, North Dakota, Montana, Florida, all held by Democrats. For ones held by Republicans, Tennessee, Arizona, Nevada, those are places that people are playing the most right now, and they're not really coming here. So will we see you know, something that shifts that brings that race more into focus nationally that we're going to get some resources here? On the campaign trail, it was another week of bold promises in the governor's race. Governor Walker vowed a 30 percent increase in state aid to the counties to fix crumbling roads, while his Democratic opponent, Tony Evers, promised a tax break to 860,000 working families in Wisconsin. When both candidates were pressed for specifics, neither of them could say where the money would come from. 
What do you make of that, and is it unusual for gubernatorial candidates to be so short on specifics with only weeks to go before an election? Well, you know, Walker's trying to roll out various pieces of his transportation plan. Um, budget requests from the agencies that Walker oversees, they were due in mid-September. The DOT one didn't really have the full transportation plan, but Walker's been promising us see bits and pieces of it. So we'll find out more details, but the entire picture is not there yet. With Evers, you know, every race that I've covered, there's always this call from the incumbent, the challenger, to lay out a specific plan, to wed him or herself to absolute details. But almost all the challenges I covered don't do that. And there's a reason why, because it's not incumbent upon them to do that. They're challenging the vision of the incumbent offering alternative. And the more you can talk in generalities, the fewer people you offend. So most challenges that I've covered just don't want to get in a very detailed plan because it's not beneficial for them politically. Speaking of the governor's race, some new financial numbers came out last week. Uh, governor Walker raised $2.3 million in August, while Democratic challenger Tony Evers raised nearly $2 million. So is Evers keeping a pretty good pace with Walker at this point, or is he still at a disadvantage because of the size of Walker's overall campaign fund? Well, cash on hand, he's definitely trailing. What's interesting about these Numbers most recent reporting period, which covers July 31st to August 31st, is both of these guys' numbers come with a caveat. Um, for Walker, it's that his running mate, Lieutenant Governor Becca Clayfish, gave him a million dollars, which helped him outraise Evers. I mean, without that transfer, he's at $1.3 million. At the same time with Evers, there was a lot of pent-up money on the Democratic side that was waiting for Nami to emerge from that eight-way primary. And from our look at his campaign finance report, the vast majority of the money that Evers raised in August came after he won that primary. It's a sign of resources coalescing around the nominee. He got six donations of 86 grand, which is the maximum. They came from unions. You know, it was we call it in politics low-hanging fruit, easy money to raise. One of the questions for Evers going forward is, well, can you match that? Can you keep that pace up? For Walker, it's can you make that money move numbers? Because so far we're not seeing numbers move. For Governor Walker, in an appreciable way, at least in the public polling that I've seen. In another race we've been following, campaign finance reports from August show Democratic Attorney General candidate Josh Call outraised incumbent Republican Brad Schimmel in August. Does that surprise you? Uh, you know, Call's been a fairly decent fundraiser so far. The questions that people have in that race are really more about the fact that Brad Schimmel is up on the air, along with the Republican Attorneys General Association, and Josh Call is not. So people in the Marquette poll a few weeks ago didn't really have an opinion of Josh Call, and he's not putting a paid media message out there yet to introduce himself. So that's one thing that worries some Democrats I talk to, because they see Schimmel out there doing stuff and don't see Call doing it and wonder if that's going to end up hurting him, because in that Marquette poll, even with Evers up and Timmy Baldwin up, Josh Call is down to Schimmel. Now, once Josh Call starts running ads once the DAGA, DAGA starts doing stuff that might kind of get people more familiar with Call. But in the meantime, Schimmel's attacking him, and so is the RAGA. So if you allow, if you're a candidate and you allow somebody else to define you before you define yourself, that puts you in a difficult spot with voters. And so the big question of is waiting good because he's going to catch people when they're actually paying attention, or is waiting bad for Call because it gives Schimmel and this outside group the chance to, you know, spend money and tell people who they think Josh Call is, rather than Josh Call doing it on his own. 
And finally, it came to light last week that Brad Schimmel did not seek jail time for two 17-year-olds who sexually assaulted younger teens when Schimmel was a county prosecutor in 2003. How might this revelation affect the campaign for attorney general? Well, we're waiting to see the attacks that are going to be making the ads um, that we assume are coming. I mean, it, it, I can't tell you for sure that there will be attack ads against Brad Schimmel, but it seems awfully likely that's going to happen and that they're going to focus on things like that. They're going to focus on the rape kits that weren't tested right away when he took over. Um, the fact that he spent taxpayer money on swag, for less, lack of a better term, uh, for Department of Justice employees when he wasn't more active on the problem. Those are all things we're going to see. Um, just a matter of when and how impactful they are and, and how are they packaged. Um, how loud is the voice that carries those messages? Because right now the only voice out there is the one attacking Josh Call, both the Schimmel campaign and the RAGA. All right. Thanks for joining us, JR. Anytime. That's WISPolitics.com editor J.R. Ross. You can join us each week for our conversations. And if you haven't done so already, subscribe to Capital Notes on iTunes, NPR One, or wherever you get your podcasts.